take your copy of God's Word this morning and uh, open it with me to Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Acts 5, beginning in verse 12, and we'll be in uh, verses 12 through 42 this morning. As you find your way uh, to your copy, uh, to, to Acts 5, I'll uh, just remind you that this evening at 5 p.m., we are gathering for, uh, for worship together uh, as a church body and for sharing in the Lord's Supper. And so I uh, pray that you would make that uh, a priority in your life to, to join uh, the church tonight for worship again at five. We're looking at the book of First Corinthians, the whole book uh, tonight as we worship together, and uh, and that'll be fun. Uh, I promise that uh, the, the book of First Corinthians is uh, kind of the the corresponding dumpster fire of the New Testament that Judges is to the Old Testament. And uh, so we'll see a, a church in quite a bit of trouble in First Corinthians, uh, but but much godly wisdom from the Apostle Paul and God's instruction to the church for dealing with those things uh, tonight as we do that. I invite you also to spend this afternoon knowing that we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper together uh, as, a, as a family of faith and as a church, that you spend this afternoon re- reflecting uh, just on your own heart, taking time to, um, uh, to ask God to reveal any, any hidden sins or, or anything that you need to repent of or begin repenting of before we gather tonight to share in the Lord's Supper together. As we share in the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is collectively saying we are trusting this Jesus who gave his life, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed for our salvation, and that we are together walking consistently with that profession of faith. And so take this afternoon and ask the Lord to help you to, to be prepared to take the Supper, the Lord's Supper, rightly. It was this week or in the last couple of weeks that a, a popular talk show host or, or panelist uh, recently made comments about Christians, uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek comments about Christians being mentally ill because they say that they hear from Jesus. And this individual said it kind of half-jokingly, but, uh, but it, was not, it was not received well by, uh, by many uh, in society. After hearing that, a couple of days later, I was uh, flipping through uh, the Twitter and saw a video with a Fox, uh, from Fox News with uh, an individual who's being interviewed uh, in response to this talk show host who had called Christians mentally ill. And this man's response to the insult of, of being mentally, considered mentally ill for, or the joke about being mentally ill from, uh, uh, in regard to hearing from Jesus, his response was not what I would have expected from a believer. His response was, was not gracious charity and love and the gospel. His response was anger and vitriol and raised voice, calling this other woman a bigot for having assumed that Christians might be mentally ill because we, or, or joking about because we hear from Jesus. Friends, I was disturbed by what I saw from this interviewee on Fox News because what he was saying about about what it is to be a Christian is not consistent with what the New Testament tells us. The New Testament tells us that we will be persecuted, we will be hated, we will be insulted and made fun of. And to respond with anger, to call someone a bigot for saying that I might be crazy because I hear from Jesus, because Jesus speaks to me through his word and in through prayer. Well, that's f- I'll take that insult because I know the God that I hear from is greater than any who, who might seek to insult or belittle my faith. As we look at Acts chapter 5 and, and we see in verses 12 through 42, the uh, intensifying effect of persecution and, and, and even um, opposition to the gospel against the church in its earliest days. We find here in this chapter that being obedient to Christ will certainly put Christians in the margins of society. 
But sharing in Christ's suffering, as we'll see the apostles do in Acts 5, sharing in Christ's suffering, being called crazy, being insulted for your faith, is actually a sign very often of being in the center of his will. Let's turn our attention to Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. I'd ask that you would stand with me in honor of reading God's word together. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Luke, again, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, continues this way. He says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders, orders to put the men outside for a little while. And, when, <clears throat> and he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. God bless the reading of his word. You be seated this morning. Being obedient to Christ will put you, as a believer, in the margins of society. You can count on it. But sharing in Christ's suffering is often a sign of being right in the middle, right in the center of His will. 
To be a disciple of Christ is to do the things that Jesus did. And the apostles are here in Acts chapter 5 doing the same thing. We see in verses 12 through 16 that true disciples of Jesus continue the ministry of Jesus. Followers of Jesus do what Jesus did. In verses 13 and 14 and 20 and 21, we see the disciples continuing the ministry of Jesus through teaching. Here in these uh, four verses, 13 and 14, 20 and 21, we see the believers gathered together with the apostles in what is called Solomon's portico. Solomon's portico was a covered sort of colonnade along the eastern wall of the temple in Jerusalem. This is the place where the believers first began gathering for teaching in Acts chapter 3, verse 11. It's the same place to which they return, the, the apostles return in verses 20 and 21 on the instruction of the angel who releases them from prison to continue teaching and preaching the words of this life. This life that is found in repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus. Teaching is a critical part of the disciple-making commission that Jesus gives us in Matthew 28, verse 20. You remember in, in, in verse 19 of the Great Commission, Jesus says, uh, Go therefore... Make disciples of all nations. And in verse 20, he says, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Here, all the apostles, not just Peter and John in Acts 5, are obeying Christ's final commands to them as they regularly gather in Solomon's portico to teach, to teach the gospel, to teach what Christ had commanded. As a result, great crowds of people begin to believe the message. They, they begin to give their lives to the gospel. So many at this point that Luke cannot count them any longer. You'll remember in Acts chapter 2, Luke counts uh, 3,000 being added to their number of the church. A couple of, uh, a couple of chapters later, we see that he counts the whole number of the men in the church to be upwards of 5,000. Well, at this point, Luke has lost count. So many people are coming to faith in Christ. But yet at the same time, because of the power that the Holy Spirit has supplied to the believers for their teaching and for witness, and because word is spreading of the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira by the Holy Spirit, which we saw last week, we find that even though there are many who are coming to faith in Christ, there are many more in Jerusalem who do not dare join the believers on a whim. They don't, they don't dare to do this flippantly or willy-nilly. Certainly the apostles would also have been teaching that following Jesus is not a choice to make on a whim. It's not a choice to be made flippantly but a cost to be considered. Such powerful teaching and consistent witness to Jesus causes the residents of Jerusalem to develop a sincere respect for these first Christians. They dare not join them because they're not ready to make that commitment yet, but they respect them for all the integrity and for the teaching that they are doing. The, the apostles continue the ministry of Jesus through teaching, but also in verse 12 and verses 15 and 16, we see them continuing the ministry of Jesus through caring. We know from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the Holy Spirit empowers the apostles and all believers to be witnesses to the risen Jesus. But he also empowers the disciples to do miraculous healings and to perform wonders and signs. So great are these healings that are being done by Peter in Acts chapter 5 and the other apostles. So miraculously is the Holy Spirit empowering them for ministry that crowds begin to bring the sick and the lame with hopes that Peter's shadow would just fall on them and heal them. There appears a connection here to the ministry of Jesus and those who sought only to touch the hem of his robe for healing, as we see in Matthew fourteen thirty six. All of these miraculous things that the disciples and apostles are doing, this, this wonderful, miraculous care that they are giving, are called signs by Luke here in verse 12. 
There's signs which, which tells us that while wondrous and wonderful, they point to something beyond themselves. They point to something greater, someone bigger even than they. These signs of power and healing at the hands of the apostles, exorcism of evil spirits, point to the truth of the gospel that they are teaching. These signs and wonders point to Jesus, who's the source of their power. Jesus, who, who sends the Holy Spirit to empower them for witness and for miracles. But these miracles also give veracity. They give validity to the gospel message that the disciples are preaching. Church, know this. Great Commission ministry is a task. Following Jesus as ministers is a task involving both word and deed. The gospel that is taught must also be practiced. And the life that is lived must match the gospel of Jesus. There must be a Christ-like integrity to everything that we do as believers. We don't get to pretend to be or act like Christians on Sunday and then do other things Monday to Saturday. We don't get to say we love Jesus and that we love others and that we want others to be saved on Sunday morning and then Monday to Saturday never do anything to reach those who are without Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and, and in verses 23 and 24, Jesus, uh, we, we read this in Matthew's gospel. From that time, Jesus began to preach. This is the beginning of his ministry, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus' ministry was both a word and deed ministry. Verse 24 of Matthew 4 says, So his fame, so Jesus' fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Jesus did not only proclaim the way to salvation through faith and repentance, but he also extended the loving and healing touch and care to the poor and needy that fits so perfectly with the grace of God to broken, empty-handed sinners. By the way, all of us are those. All of us are broken, empty-handed sinners that God has lavished his love and grace upon. Jesus, show, Jesus shows that in very concrete ways in his ministry. And his apostles, his disciples, those that he has sent out to, to spread the gospel and plant churches do the same thing. Their ministry is... Is that like Christ's in both teaching and caring, in both word and deed? And so must ours be. But then we see as they continue, as the apostles continue in Jesus' ministry, that, that they inevitably run up against the high priest and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin yet again. In verses 17 to 40, we find this, that suffering regularly awaits true disciples of Jesus. Suffering regularly awaits true disciples of Jesus. And true disciples of Jesus do what Jesus did. We ought not to expect that true, true disciples of Jesus would experience anything different than what Jesus experienced. In the lives of the apostles and here in the scene in Acts chapter 5, we see that suffering awaits the apostles first through unjust accusations. Through unjust accusations. Again, as we saw back in Acts chapter 3, as the apostles uh, continue preaching salvation in Jesus' name, and as crowds are gathering and the, the group of believers is growing, the Sadducees and the high priest there in Acts chapter 3 go after the apostles. In Acts chapter 3, this group of religious rulers is said to be greatly annoyed with Peter and John and the message of the resurrection that they're preaching in Jesus' name. But here in Acts chapter 5, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, and the high priest all together are not just greatly annoyed. They are filled with jealousy, Luke says, at what is being done through the apostles. 
And this time, the council has not just Peter and John arrested, but all of the apostles arrested and placed in the public jail. Now, the fact that the Sanhedrin does this, they arrest the apostles out of jealousy, reveals to us that their charges and and the complaint against the apostles is not grounded in any actual crime that the apostles have committed. They're not motivated by justice. They're motivated by jealousy. Rather, the apostles, in this case, are recipients of unjust accusations, unjust, unrightful arrest and detainment. But church, we should not be surprised by this. And I don't think the apostles were surprised by this either. Because Jesus himself said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 that this sort of thing would happen. They should expect to be turned over to governors and rulers and kings and have to defend their faith uh, even in front of those who are judging them unjustly. Church all around the world today in places like North Korea and Syria and Iran and increasingly again in communist China, believers in Jesus are the recipients of unjust accusations. They are charged with so-called thought crimes simply for professing the name of Jesus. Unjust and unfounded accusations await true disciples of Jesus because of the jealousy for power and influence that is in the hearts of every sinful person, especially of those who have great power and influence. You can expect to receive suffering through unjust accusations as you follow Jesus faithfully. But you can also expect to receive suffering at the hands of of others through angry threats. In the night after their arrest, the apostles are freed from the jail by an angel of the Lord here in Acts 5 and are commanded to go do what got them in jail in the first place, to preach in the temple again the next day, which, by the way, they faithfully do. Pastor Danny and I were, were uh, as we do week, week by week, we talk about the text and, and, uh, and how we think things might apply. But we're just looking at the, at the life of the, the apostles and this scene in their lives. And here they are sitting in jail for having uh, been preaching the message. And this angel comes, opens the doors of the jail for them to go out and tells them, uh, go and do the exact same thing that got you here in the first place. Like, just put yourself in the place of, of the apostles at that moment. She's like, oh, okay, I mean... What are you you going to say to an angel of the Lord? But at the same time, you go, well, we'll go, but we know how that's going to end too, right? The next day, when the Sanhedrin is actually able to meet together and to track down the apostles, they get kind of a good news, bad news sort of report from the captain of the guards. Good news, the, the jail is locked up tight, right? The guards are in place. The jail is secure. Bad news, the apostles aren't there anymore. Don't know what to tell you. When the Sanhedrin finally tracks down the apostles and this time brings them back into their meeting, into the council, uh, mind you, not by force because the Sanhedrin is now afraid of the people. When they bring the apostles back in, they question the apostles as to why they have been disobedient to the very charge that they had previously given in Acts chapter 3, that charge not to preach in the name of Jesus. And we find Peter and the apostles with him answered just like Peter did in Acts chapter 3 to say, we must obey God rather than men. We told you once, we'll tell you again. We must obey God rather than men. That's a poem that I made on the spot. That's pretty good. So he says, we must obey God rather than men. And then he preaches the gospel to them. He preaches to them the very gospel that he's been charged not to. And he says uh, here in in verse uh, 
29, Peter and the apostles said, we must obey God rather, rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him as, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we're witness to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. <laughs> Peter has, is just, he's got a spine of steel. He's been told once, don't preach the name of Jesus. He's been arrested twice for it. He's told a second time, don't preach in the name of Jesus. And for a second time, he preaches to the Sanhedrin, to these religious rulers in Israel, the gospel of Jesus. And he calls them to repentance. Sometimes stubbornness is a virtue. The response of the Sanhedrin, though, to Peter's preaching the gospel for the second time, calling them to repentance a second time, is not, in fact, to repent and to trust Christ as he's called them to. Instead, the Sanhedrin responds in a killing rage. This group of men is, at hearing the gospel of Christ, ready to do to Jesus' followers exactly what they did to their Messiah. They're ready to treat Peter and John and the others the same way that they treated Jesus These kinds of angry, murderous threats are suffered by Christians all throughout the New Testament and all throughout world history. What happens to the apostles in Acts chapter 5 will become a normative experience for Christians, not only in the first century, but friends, even in the 21st century. So don't be fooled, Christian, as you minister with Christ-like integrity in word and deed, pointing people to eternal life in Jesus Christ, there will be those who will threaten your livelihood who will threaten your freedom, who will threaten even the very lives of you and your family. This is the reality awaiting those who will willingly and and lovingly obey God rather than men. This is the reality awaiting those who will live gospel lives submitted to the Lord Jesus and to minister to the world as he did. Christian, don't be deceived by the ease and the comfort that we presently have in the 21st century here in the West For true disciples of Jesus, persecution is coming. It it comes through unjust accusations. It comes through angry threats, but it also comes through physical violence. At this point of the the threats of execution, the killing rage that the Sanhedrin is brought to, a prominent Pharisee named Gamaliel, who is rabbi and mentor, mentor to Saul of Tarsus, who will later be converted by Christ, become a mighty tool in the hand of God for the gospel, This man, Gamaliel, stands up and has the apostles dismissed for a moment and talks the Sanhedrin down off the ledge through a well-reasoned argument. He said, guys, killing them might be a little bit extreme. Let's consider another course of action. He recounts for them two instances of similar messianic movements, one by Theudas and another by a man named Judas from Galilee. And Gamaliel says, rather than doing anything rash here, guys, let's just leave these men and their movement be. If it's from their own contrivance, if it's by their own charisma, then eventually it'll fizzle out and there won't be anything to worry about. It's happened before, more than once. We've, we've seen this thing play out. He says, but on the other hand, if what these guys are doing, if the message that they're preaching is really from God, and God is really in all of this, and you put these men to death, you may actually find yourself an enemy to God himself. So be wise Exercise caution about how you move forward with these men. Now, the Sanhedrin, 
is swayed by this argument. Gamaliel puts forward a, a well-reasoned uh, argument for what to do with the apostles in the Sanhedrin. They, they walk back a little bit from wanting to kill the apostles. But not so much as to let the, the, the disciples here now go scot-free. They bring the disciples, they bring the apostles back in, and they have them flogged. They have them beaten, the text says. The apostles, all 12 of them, would have in this moment been bare-chested and bare-backed, kneeling uh, on the ground in, in front of the captain of the guard, the tops of their tunics removed, and each would have received 39 lashes, one on the chest for every two on the back, with a braided cowhide cord. This is no light slap on the wrist, friends. This ordeal, this flogging was known to have killed people in history. And this is what the Sanhedrin submits the apostles to. Brothers and sisters, the apostles are not only unjustly accused and verbally threatened for preaching the name of Jesus, but they are physically and severely beaten for it. Church tradition holds that the majority of the apostles would eventually experience far worse than this later in their lives. Most of them having their lives ended through all manner and all means of torturous execution for the name of Jesus. And they're not alone in history. Countless other followers of Jesus have given their lives for the cause of Christ. And great is their reward in heaven, church. Christian, know that to follow Jesus, that to, to teach the way of salvation by faith in him, and to minister with compassion and grace to those who are poor in spirit may cost you your very life. So, Christian, count the cost of following Jesus. Count the cost of following Jesus. We know from Scripture, we read in one of the Gospels, Jesus strictly charges and commands to the disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ. He says this is in Mark chapter 6, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all of them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Christian following Jesus will cost us in this life. Non-Christian friend, you who are, are, are trying to decide whether you want to follow Jesus, you're trying to figure out if this thing is true, what it means to be a Christian, know this, following Jesus will cost you in this life. It will cost your reputation. It will cost friendships. It will cost relationships with family members. It will cost time and livelihood and personal security. Jesus told any who would follow him to take up their cross daily. That is literally to pick up and carry the instrument of their own execution to follow after him. Friends, God's grace to us in Christ is not cheap. Do not be confused to think that Christ died naked, naked, beaten, humiliated on the cross in front of those who mocked and spit upon him so that you could live out your life of faith in this Savior in the safety, comfort, and privacy of your quiet Christianity. Church, my life of faith is often all uh, far too easy. It's far too comfortable. My life is far too quiet, far too safe, far too peaceful. 
in the face of texts like this one today in Acts chapter 5, I have to ask myself, and I pray that you will too, have I really counted the cost? Have I really picked up my cross? Am I really following Jesus with all of the integrity of a true disciple? Do I not only expect persecution to come, but am I willing to embrace it when it does for the name of Christ? Christian, have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Because suffering awaits you for being a true follower of Christ. But third and finally, as we look at verses 41 and 42 of this passage, we see true disciples minister the way Jesus ministered. True disciples uh, have suffering coming to them. But finally, true disciples of Jesus rejoice in suffering for Christ. True disciples of Jesus rejoice in suffering for Christ. First of all, because it is an honor. Chapter 5 of Acts, verse 41 says this, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. It is an honor to suffer for the name of Jesus. Having been beaten, the apostles are now freed in Acts chapter 5. But rather than being dejected and defeated by the unjust treatment of the Sanhedrin, the apostles rejoice in that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor and abuse for the name of their Savior. Such is the transformative work of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit and the person of Jesus that it causes believers to consider suffering for his name an honor. They wear that badge with pride. They wear those stripes on their chest and on their backs with honor, knowing that their Lord received far worse and that they were considered, considered to be treated in the same way that he was. Suffering for Christ is an honor, and because it's an honor, we can rejoice in it. But it's not only an honor, but we can rejoice in the suffering we receive for Jesus because it also identifies us with Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11 says this. Paul the Apostle writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, Paul says, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Christian, to be treated with scorn, to suffer for the name of Jesus, is to do no less than to suffer what our Savior suffered. If you suffer out of your faithfulness and your your Christ-like integrity for the gospel, know this, that you are being made like Jesus. If you're treated like Jesus, you're going to be made like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit in you. Rejoice in that because you're identified with your Savior. Church this morning, take comfort. Take comfort and count it a joy to receive opposition to gospel ministry that is done with Christ-like integrity. Take comfort. Take heart. Count it a matter to rejoice in when you receive opposition, when you are the recipient of suffering for gospel ministry done with Christ-like integrity. Now, this on its face seems the most paradoxical thing to do, to revel in mistreatment for the gospel. I, as much as anyone, enjoy being liked. 
It warms me to hear praise when I preach a good sermon. And it troubles me when I preach or share the gospel and find certain persons visibly hardening to the message. Have you ever been there? Conversation with someone you've been, you've been praying for opportunity to share the gospel with. You start talking about Jesus and their whole countenance changes. They're, they're, you, can, you can see their heart hardening, frown forming on their face, eyes squinting with anger, frustration, disappointment at what they're hearing. We all want to be liked, and it's disappointing when, when we're not, especially when we're talking with others about the most important thing in our lives. But in times like that, I have to remind, remind myself, and I encourage you too, brother and sister, you do the same, that the gospel cuts, the gospel divides, the gospel convicts, and we in our sin do not like conviction. I'll ask the men of this room. Any of you enjoy being told you're wrong by your wife? It's not easy. And most of the time, probably like 99% of the time, they're right. It's hard to hear the truth. The gospel, which, is, which speaks truth about our sin, is hard to hear. And not just for men, for women too. It's hard to hear that we have a problem. A problem that we can't fix. And the gospel that divides will set people who are set and content in their sin against us. And friend, that's okay. It's okay. Christian, rejoice in this life when you live and speak of Christ with all the consistency of his character and are hated for it. Rejoice in that. Sing and dance and praise the Lord when you are shunned for the name of Christ. Seek not to bring persecution on yourself. Don't suffer persecution for being a jerk. Suffer persecution for being a loving minister of Christ. Seek not to bring persecution on yourself, but prepare your heart to exult in worship when God allows you to share in the same treatment for the gospel as the crucified and risen Jesus did to make that gospel true. Christian, being obedient to Christ will put you on the margins of society. And for it, you may receive real and serious persecution. But comfort your heart by knowing that sharing in Christ's suffering is a sign of being in the center of his will. Dear friend, it may be this morning that you would not identify yourself as a Christian. But this idea of having your sins forgiven so that you might live and die for something and someone greater than yourself with the hope of eternal life to follow, that concept of salvation in Jesus has gripped your heart this morning. Know this, my non-Christian friend. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived a life without ever rebelling against His Heavenly Father so that He could die as a perfect sacrifice for your sins. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He defeated sin and death and Satan for all time. And this Jesus invites you today to trust him as billions have over the course of the last 2,000 years. Jesus is calling you to give up your sin and to give him the throne of your heart. He's calling you to trust him, to follow him, to live for him, and to point others to him. As God speaks to you this morning, here in the next couple of moments, we're going to respond to God's word in singing and in prayer. As God speaks to you this morning, I invite you to step out and meet me here at the front of this room to pray with me to receive Jesus as Lord. My non-Christian friend, knowing the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done to save you from your sin, even to know the kind of life that he is calling you to, would you give your life to Jesus today? But my dear Christian brother and sister, my question for you is not would you give your life to Jesus today, but would you give your life for Jesus today? Friend, is there anything holding you back from living for Christ with full abandon? God will show you these hangups in your heart as we sing and pray in a moment. I know this. 
What do you need to lay before God this morning in surrender today that you might give your all for him tomorrow? Is it pride? Is it fear? Is it lack of knowledge? Is it just uncertainty about how things may go for you and your family and your your life together? If you're actually vocal and open about Christ, bring those things to God in prayer this morning. Ask God to help you. Through that, And you don't need to be bold or courageous to do that. In this family of faith, we lift one another up. So there's no shame, Christian, in coming forward and receiving prayer, praying with me or praying on your own. There's no shame in any of that. You step out, you be bold. God will respond to that. He will speak to you in that. He will help you to deal with the issues that you have. He will help you to get rid of those hangups you have in sharing the gospel, in giving your life for Jesus. Here in this body of faith, we lift one another up. We don't tear one another down. We're all here to be better equipped as ambassadors for Christ. No one's judging you. All of us are praying together to grow bolder in our faith. So Christian, you come, you pray for God to strengthen you today as we sing. Non-Christian friend, you to whom God is calling to be saved, to trust Christ, you come forward and trust Jesus today, this morning. Let's pray together.